This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. Search To Die For in your podcast app to follow the show. Boston, 1920. You sit inside the tastefully adorned offices on 27 School Street, wrapped in the performance playing out before you. A well-dressed, short-statured businessman is delivering a well-rehearsed sales pitch. Speaking with a suppressed Italian accent, the man lays out a foolproof investment method. It involves the purchase and reselling of Italian postage at a highly favorable exchange rate. It's safe, legal, and most importantly, all investments are repaid with a 50% interest in 90 days. Guaranteed. You do the math in your head. If this was true, you would make more money in a few months than you would in an entire year at your low-paying job. $1,000 could become 5000 in just 12 months. You've watched friends and family invest in this plan and become wealthy practically overnight. You can't help but fall under the spell of the man's confidence. It seems like a sure thing a shortcut to the upper crust of society. You happily take out your pocketbook. You've heard enough and you're thrilled to invest your life savings with this smooth-talking man in an expensive suit. But there's only one problem. There is no investment method. There are no stamps. The entire thing is a massive scam and you're just another brick in a sprawling pyramid scheme. You've just been had by master fraudster, Charles Ponzi. Welcome to Con Artists, a podcast original. I'm Alastair Murden. Every week, we peel back the layers of history's greatest deceptions and tell the stories of the hustlers, swindlers, and fraudsters that orchestrated them. I'll dive into their psychology, break down their tricks, and explain why anyone might fall for a con. 
You can find episodes of Con Artists and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Con Artists for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Con Artists in the search bar. At Parcast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help us. This week, we're covering Charles Ponzi, the man who built a financial empire based on a lie. Ponzi not only created the fraudulent scheme that bears his name, but would go on to inspire countless con artists in the century to come. We'll hear about his origins, his initial confrontations with the law, and how he grew a simple scam into a financial powerhouse worth millions. Next week, we'll see how Ponzi was eventually discovered as a fraud, taken down, and how his legacy continues to this day. The Roaring Twenties in America was an economic boom time, but only for some. Wealthy industrialists and ruthless businessmen made millions, while the working class saw their wages drop due to inflation. Income inequality reached staggering levels. Half of all the wealth generated by the economy was controlled by the top 1%, something unprecedented in American life. In this environment, get-rich-quick schemes exploded. People desperately wanted to believe there was some way they too could join the wealthy upper class, which made them easy prey for someone like Charles Ponzi. Through his sham company, Securities Exchange, he and his associates hoodwinked countless low- and middle-class investors. Utilizing a combination of smooth-talking confidence and stellar word of mouth, Ponzi convinced the people of Boston to sink their life savings into his dangerous financial shell game. Charles Ponzi was well-suited to exploit the desires of his lower-class investors to mount the social ladder. He, too, had humble origins. Born Carlo Pietro Giovanni Guglielmo Tobaldo Ponzi on March 3, 1882, in the town of Lugo, Italy. His father was a postman, and his mother came from a family of lawyers and court officials. They weren't rich, but they weren't destitute either and Ponzi's mother had big plans for her young son's future. She filled his head with dreams of success and glory, and Ponzi did his best to make them a reality. He attended both public and private schools in his youth, then attended college at the University of Rome, where he learned how to emulate his wealthier, aristocratic classmates. Ponzi dressed like them, ate at fancy restaurants like them, and even tried his best to speak like them. He spent less time studying his coursework than he did the mannerisms and habits of his rich classmates. One day, he assured himself, he would be one of them. But eventually, 
Ponzi learned too well how to act like an aristocratic Roman youth. He skipped classes, spent money he didn't have, and failed out of the university. He was too proud to take a working-class job, too broke to return to school, and worse, he had failed his mother. But there was still one more option on the table: America. Everyone around Ponzi spoke of the United States like it was a fantasy land with streets paved with gold, a place where anyone, even a middle-class Italian boy, could make a fortune. Ponzi had a choice: stay in Italy and struggle against a rigid class structure that would never let him join the upper crust of society, or leave everything behind for America. So in early November 1903, reportedly with $200 in his pocket, a little over $5,000 today, 21-year-old Carlo Ponzi did just that. He boarded the SS Vancouver in Naples and set off for Boston, Massachusetts. On the ship, Ponzi's spendthrift habits continued. He insisted on bunking in second class, even though it was twice the price of third-class accommodations. He gambled and drank so much. By the time the two-week voyage was over, he only had two dollars and fifty cents left. In Boston, his dreams of America were dashed immediately. The streets weren't paved with gold; they were covered in mud. No one spoke Italian, and Ponzi spoke very little English. He expected to find a land of opportunity and wealth. Instead, Ponzi found himself marooned in a strange land without a financial cushion to fall back on. With virtually no money to his name, young Ponzi traveled to Pittsburgh, where a distant cousin helped him get settled and find employment. He had no choice but to take one of the working-class jobs that he deemed unworthy back in Rome. Still, Ponzi slowly worked up the ladder of the American dream. He traveled across the eastern seaboard, from Pittsburgh to New York to Connecticut, learned English, and even adopted a more Americanized version of the name Carlo, Charles. In 1907, 25-year-old Charles Ponzi found himself in Montreal, Canada. There, he worked as a clerk for an Italian bank operated by a man named Luigi Zarossi. In an effort to entice new business, the bank offered exorbitant, seemingly impossible interest for its Italian immigrant clients, promising an unprecedented 6% return on their deposits. It seemed impossible, because it was. The bank couldn't come up with such a steep return on investments. No one could. Instead, Zarossi just moved money around, borrowing funds from newer clients' accounts to pay the promised interest. And Charles Ponzi watched this financial shell game from the sidelines. But ultimately, Zarossi couldn't manage to keep it afloat. By 1908, the bank had collapsed, and Zarossi had fled to Mexico. Ponzi was out of work and needed to get back on his feet. 
In a desperate attempt for quick cash, he forged a check from one of Zerosi's former clients. It only took a few hours for Ponzi's bank to realize the check was a fake and for the police to arrive on his doorstep. For the crime of stealing $423.58, about $12,000 today, Ponzi was sentenced to three years in jail. Ponzi served his time at the St. Vincent de Paul Penitentiary outside Montreal. St. Vincent was a utilitarian establishment populated mostly with other small-time crooks and criminals. But Ponzi wanted nothing to do with those lowlives. And so, just like he had in the outside world, he worked his way up the prison social ladder. Ponzi went from yard rock crusher to assistant in the warden's office within a year. And in 1910, two years into his sentence, he was released early for good behavior. With $5 in his pocket, 28-year-old Ponzi boarded a train for New York City, a free man. But his liberation was short-lived. He immediately ended up back in jail, this time for attempting to smuggle undocumented immigrants into the United States, five other Italian immigrants. Ponzi claimed they were friends of friends that he was simply helping. But the authorities believed he was paid to get them through the border. Ponzi was sentenced to two more years in prison, which he served at the significantly more comfortable Atlanta Federal Penitentiary. Ponzi's fellow inmates in Atlanta were not the small-time crooks of the Montreal prison. These were high-profile white-collar criminals who taught Ponzi a valuable lesson about American society. The rich play by a different set of rules. With enough money, anyone can bypass the American justice system. After two years in Atlanta, 30-year-old Ponzi was released, penniless once more. He traveled through the South, working odd jobs, trying his best to keep himself out of prison. All the while, Ponzi dreamed of founding his own business and building a profit-producing empire of making so much money that he would never have to return to jail. It was just a matter of figuring out a genius fortune-making plan. By 1917, 35-year-old Ponzi had made his way back to where he started, Boston. He found work as a clerk at the J.R. Pool Company, an import-export business. The job wasn't high-paying, but at the very least, it wasn't manual labor. And most importantly for Ponzi, the position exposed him to his greatest passion, handling large sums of money. With stable, well-paying work, Ponzi set up a life for himself in Boston, renting a room in a neighborhood of other Italian-Americans. That year, he met 21-year-old Rose Necco, the just under five-foot-tall daughter of Italian immigrants and a piano student of Ponzi's landlady. Just one conversation with Rose was all it took for Ponzi to decide he would marry her. And after a brief and relentless courtship, he did exactly that. 
Their wedding was held in February 1918, ten months after they first met. While their home life was blissful, Ponzi's employment remained volatile. After quitting his position at J.R. Poole in 1918, he attempted to become a commodities broker, buying and selling various wholesale products in the city. However, that career came to a perilous end in May of 1919, when he was arrested for stealing over £5,000 of cheese. Once again, Ponzi faced serious jail time and potentially an end to his American dream. However, he was ultimately saved not by divine intervention, but by a spelling mistake. The warrant for his arrest spelled his name P O U Z I instead of P O N Z I. That one letter ultimately undid the case. After getting off scot-free, Ponzi was now a firm believer that his luck could beat any odds. It gave him a sense of superiority and inflated his belief that he was destined for greatness. It's likely that Ponzi was a budding narcissist. According to the American Psychiatric Association, these are both major components of narcissistic personality disorder, fueled by ego. Ponzi worked even harder and less ethically at making his American dream come true. Ponzi bounced from one ill-fated business venture to the next. Each time, he was sure that he had stumbled across the genius plan that would make him as rich as his mother promised he would someday be. But no matter what his vision was, Ponzi struggled to keep it afloat. Few people thought his ventures were worth investing in, and he was repeatedly denied for bank loans. By August of 1919, 37-year-old Ponzi was running out of ideas. One day, as he sifted through his mail, a letter caught his attention. It was from a company in Spain requesting a copy of a business reference guide Ponzi had published. One of his many failed business ideas. To pay for a copy of the guide to be sent back to Spain, the letter included a small piece of paper, not Spanish or English currency, but something of value nonetheless. It was an international reply coupon, backed by the Universal Postal Union. The coupon could be exchanged for stamps in any country to make it easier for mail to be sent across borders. In that moment, an idea formed in Ponzi's head. Although the international reply coupons had a set value for stamps, the postage itself had a different value depending on the country. Theoretically, he could buy reply coupons in a country with a weaker currency, say Italy, then exchange the coupons for stamps in the U.S. and sell them at a significant profit. And if he could buy the postage in bulk, he could do this a hundred or even a thousand times over. Finally, Ponzi had found the idea that would make him rich. When we come back, Charles Ponzi sets his scheme into motion. Now back to the story. 
By 1919, 37-year-old Italian immigrant Charles Ponzi had struggled to find his footing in America for over a decade. Then, finally, he discovered a scheme that could make him rich. Buying international reply coupons overseas and selling them in the US for a profit. The plan was smart, simple, and most importantly, legal. Ponzi did the calculations. One US dollar bought 66 reply coupons in Italy. Those could be exchanged for $3.33 worth of stamps in the US. A 230% profit. But Ponzi didn't want to buy coupons a dollar at a time. He wanted to buy them in bulk, by the hundreds. However, that meant he needed investors. No matter how hard he pitched his new idea to banks and rich investors, they continued to ignore him. Ponzi, desperate for startup funds, pawned his wife's jewelry. But that still wasn't enough. By the winter of 1919, he was nearly penniless again. In December, furniture dealer Joseph Daniels arrived at Ponzi's office to reclaim Ponzi's rented desks and chairs. In one last ditch effort, Ponzi gave his full proposal to Daniels, outlining the entire reply coupon plan. All he needed was a first investment and the money would begin flowing in, guaranteed. He asked Daniels to give him a loan of $200, just about $3,000 today. Then, Ponzi sweetened the deal. If Daniels invested, Ponzi promised to pay it back with interest after just 60 days. He delivered the pitch of a lifetime, using every ounce of his charisma and persuasive ability. Daniels was awed. Instead of walking out of the office with Ponzi's office furniture, he left with a lighter wallet. Ponzi found his first investor. Soon after Daniel's commitment, Ponzi officially established his new international reply coupon business. He called it the Securities Exchange Company. Ponzi had finally discovered the way forward, the way to his American dream. He didn't need to convince a bank to loan him a large lump sum. He just needed dozens of small-time investors. He tailored his sales pitch to appeal to the everyday person, focusing on promises of huge returns on small investments. His shift towards poorer targets laborers, immigrants, the working class, meant he was now pitching to those who felt beaten down by the system rather than the ones propping it up. Ponzi sold to those who were more likely to believe in a miracle investment scheme that could lift them out of poverty and into a mansion in Cambridge. In a study conducted by the University of Leicester, Researchers concluded that a life of hardship can actually make people more gullible, not less. Being taken advantage of by an economic system makes individuals mistrust their own judgment. Therefore, they're more likely to fall under the influence of things like advertising, interrogations, 
or even a charismatic charlatan like Charles Ponzi. And he figured out exactly how to make his potential backers come to him rather than the other way around. Ponzi carefully cultivated his image, creating an aura of financial wizardry and wealth. He knew how important it was not to appear desperate for someone's investment. When he found a potential target, the first thing he did was create dollar signs in their eyes with promises of huge returns in record time. Then Ponzi explained his investment plan in detail, impressing his marks with his knowledge of the international postage business. Once his targets were convinced, ready to hand over their savings, Ponzi played coy. He never took the money immediately, but rather invited them to meet him at his office at a later date. And they always showed up, cash in hand. The investment just made too much sense to pass up. It felt like a surefire windfall. And Ponzi just seemed like a man they could trust. By January of 1920, Ponzi had raised $1,800 in small investments, almost $25,000 today, without buying a single reply coupon. Ponzi was already flush with cash. But instead of paying back his investors, the first thing he did was go back to the pawn shop to reclaim his wife's jewelry. It was a small act of impropriety, but it was the first moment that Ponzi's securities exchange company tipped into illegality. And that one toe dip opened the floodgates. Once he started spending the cash that was available to him, he simply couldn't stop. Ponzi bought expensive suits and coats. He paid off old debts and even sent money back to his mother in Italy. Ponzi had, of course, put the cart before the horse. He still wasn't sure the entire international reply coupon scheme would work, let alone be as profitable as he had promised. And yet, he had already collected hundreds of dollars in investments with promises to return huge profits within 90 days. If he didn't, not only would his business fall apart, but his reputation would be destroyed. Ponzi couldn't take that chance. He had to repay his investors, and he only had one way to do that. He took what he'd learned from his old boss at the bank in Montreal and put it into practice. Ponzi paid back his initial investors with money from new investors. He robbed Peter to pay Paul. The Securities Exchange Company was now officially a scam. According to experts at the Australian Institute of Criminology, many fraudsters, like Ponzi, actually begin with intentions to act legally. The shift from legitimacy to theft occurs because the scam artist realizes their business is struggling, but they're too focused on appearing successful to let it fail. They're often driven by optimism and a lack of self-control, both traits that Ponzi had in spades. 
Perhaps as early as the first investor, Ponzi knew that his reply coupon scheme had serious and possibly insurmountable logistical hurdles. But he chose to believe that it could work and passed on that infectious attitude to his investors who were just as hungry to strike it rich as he was. Ponzi repaid his initial backers with a 50% return, not only on time, but 15 days early. But the profit, of course, was made up entirely by funds from new investors. However, as a result of his success, many of his initial investors didn't cash out. Instead, they reinvested. It only propelled the con further. Even though Ponzi had found such success without the reply coupons, he still planned on buying coupons. He wanted to make his business legitimate. So when he officially learned from the Postmaster General's office in Washington, D.C. that his postage scheme wouldn't work, he was devastated. What was he going to do now? It was too late. By then, Ponzi was pot-committed to the scam. The word of his miraculous investment strategy had spread and people were lining up around the block for the chance to give him their money. Retirees invested their life savings with Ponzi. Husbands and wives forked over their rainy day funds. Whether they had $15 or $2,000 to invest, Ponzi would bewitch anyone with the supposed success of his postage scheme. Through sheer force of will and a good amount of strategic dishonesty, Ponzi had achieved his American dream. He bought a house in an affluent neighborhood, several fancy cars, and the finest clothing that money could buy. The Italian immigrant had finally achieved what he had wanted since he was a little boy. He was rich, respected, and dignified. As investments increased, so did the business. Ponzi expanded the operation, building out the pyramid. He recruited a sales team, trained them extensively, and then dispatched them to pitch to their own investors for a 10% commission. And soon, those agents recruited their own sub-agents, who did the same for a 5% commission. But the most useful salesmen were the investors themselves. In awe of their miraculous windfall, they often pushed their friends and family to invest with Ponzi too. The number of individual backers soon soared to nearly 15,000. Now swimming in cash, Ponzi fulfilled his wildest and pettiest dreams. One morning in the summer of 1920, 38-year-old Ponzi walked into the offices of his former employer, John Poole, unannounced and sat down in the stuffed armchair across from Poole's desk. Poole, who had no idea how successful Ponzi had become, was taken aback by his brazenness. But Ponzi surprised his old boss even more with a wild proposition. He wanted to buy stock in Poole's company. Always happy to take on an investor, Poole offered him 25 shares. But Ponzi shook his head. 
He wanted all of it. He wanted the entire company. Poole laughed. He couldn't comprehend the idea of his former clerk coming out of the blue to take over his business. Poole skeptically told Ponzi exactly how much it would take to buy the company. Ponzi took out his checkbook and started writing. Poole was shocked. He accused Ponzi of bluffing. Ponzi simply replied, "JR." I never bluff. After some negotiations, Ponzi bought the J.R. Pool Company for two hundred and forty thousand dollars, approximately three million dollars today. But he didn't stop there. He was building an empire after all. He wanted to control a bank. Controlling a financial institution gave him a safety net in the form of a huge pile of cash. In other words, if he owned a bank, he would become too big to fail. But once again, Ponzi made his business dealings personal. He didn't want just any bank. He decided he was going to buy the Hanover Trust, a smaller-scale Boston bank. And not so coincidentally, the bank had repeatedly refused to give Ponzi a loan for his past business ventures. The embodiment of that rejection was Henry Shimalinsky, the bank's president, and the man who had personally refused Ponzi's previous loan applications. He was an imposing and refined gentleman, a perfect representative of the elite that Ponzi so desperately wanted to be a part of. Hanover was his white whale. Ponzi's plan to buy out Shimalinsky's bank requires significantly more strategy than his takeover of the J.R. Poole Company. Over the course of a few months, he began buying the bank's stock as much and as quickly as he could. Next, he became their biggest client, slowly depositing 2.7 million dollars. Nearly forty million dollars today in the bank's coffers. It was a strategic amount. The institution itself was only valued at five million dollars. Eventually, he met with Shimalinsky and revealed his hand. Ponzi told him that he wanted enough stock to control the bank. When Shimalinsky balked, Ponzi used the weight of his financial power and threatened to withdraw all at once the millions he had deposited into their accounts. Shimalinsky, knowing how disastrous this individual withdrawal would be, had to make a deal. He agreed to a middle ground: fifteen hundred shares, not quite enough to control the entire bank. Ponzi took the deal, smirking as he shook Shimalinsky's hand. He had no idea that Ponzi had already met and schmoozed with the bank's Italian immigrant stockholders. With their support, he was sure to make up the difference in shares and, in effect, still control the bank. Shimalinsky didn't know it. But he had just sold his bank to a scam artist. Everything was going perfectly for Charles Ponzi. 
His ownership of the Hanover Trust Bank and assorted other companies ensured him a constant influx of money to keep his pyramid funded. It also transformed him into a respected Bostonian businessman. It wasn't long before he was invited into the inner circle of wealthy elites. It was the perfect time for a figure from Ponzi's shadowy past to re-enter his life and threaten everything he had built. Coming up, Charles Ponzi encounters a man hell-bent on exposing Ponzi for what he truly is. Now back to the story. By 1920, 38-year-old Charles Ponzi had gone from low-class Italian immigrant to the toast of Boston, a financial wizard whose miracle investment scheme had made him a millionaire. His scheme was, of course, a massive pyramid scam that paid old investors with new investors' money. But the plan would continue to work as long as new investors kept streaming in and those at the top of the pyramid kept raking in money. But it was at this time, the height of his power, that an old acquaintance arrived in Boston and threatened to expose Ponzi as a criminal. Louis Casulo was exactly the sort of man that Charles Ponzi did not want to be associated with. Also an Italian immigrant, Casulo was a low-class criminal who stole from the poor, drunk and infirmed. The two met as cellmates at the St. Vincent de Paul Penitentiary, where they spent their time crushing rocks and surviving the brutal cold. The two simply tolerated each other's presence. Ponzi looked down on Casulo, and Casulo resented Ponzi's unearned elitism. Twelve years later, in 1920, Casulo arrived in Boston and discovered that his former cellmate was now a successful and respected businessman. It made him the perfect target for blackmail. In the spring of 1920, Casulo visited Ponzi's offices at 27 School Street, pushed past the line of aspiring investors and walked straight into Ponzi's office. Ponzi didn't recognize him at first, thinking he was just another investor. He gave the man a friendly greeting and offered him a seat. Casulo smirked as he sat down. Then, taking off his hat, he asked if Ponzi recognized him. The color drained from Ponzi's face as he realized who the man sitting across his desk was. He couldn't bring himself to say a word. So Casulo talked instead. He acted like an old friend, asking after his mother's health and inquiring about his business. But Ponzi knew what was happening. Even if Casulo didn't outright say it, he was being threatened. Both Ponzi and Casulo knew that if the truth came out about Ponzi's criminal past, his reputation would be destroyed. The whole pyramid would come tumbling down. So, to keep him quiet, Ponzi offered Casulo money. But he wasn't going to just pay him. Casulo had to work for it. 
Kasulo enthusiastically accepted, shaking his hand. The greatest threat to Ponzi's empire became his newest employee. Ponzi did his best to insulate Kasulo from the inner workings of his company, sending him on meaningless tasks or occasionally ones meant to get him arrested, like sending him to buy bootleg whiskey. And Kasulo, of course, took advantage of any opportunities he had to skim off the top of Ponzi's cash, often brazenly stealing in front of other employees. Because of what he knew, he was untouchable. He even took to forging Ponzi's investors' notes and getting strangers to cash them out. But Ponzi was forced to do anything to keep Casulo satisfied and quiet. That included buying Casulo and his wife a newly renovated house by the coast and ignoring his blatant company theft. This pressure from Casulo made Ponzi confront some hard truths. His scam would eventually reach a tipping point. Either they would run out of new investors, or Casulo would follow through on his blackmail threats. Or someone else would figure out the truth about his business and have him arrested. Eventually, Ponzi would have to make a decision. Flee with his cash or face the authorities. If all else failed, he reasoned, he could take whatever money he could grab and return to Italy with his wife. For the time being, however, Ponzi was still riding high. In June of 1920, he got his first taste of wide publicity. The Boston Traveler, a major newspaper, published an article about his investment firm. The piece focused on the incredible returns it was paying investors, and intrigued readers sought Ponzi out, cash in hand. More money meant Ponzi wanted more for himself. Ponzi paid off his wife's family's debts and bought a custom-built limousine. According to psychologist Maria Konnikova, large-scale con artists like Ponzi are motivated by appearances and driven by narcissism. Ponzi always believed that he deserved to be a millionaire and didn't care if he took shortcuts to get there. He would do anything to maintain the image he had built for himself and grow it even further. He even invited a newspaper to profile him, awing the young reporter with his wealth, fine taste and supposed philanthropic attitude. Things really turned a corner once Daniel Desmond, a prominent Boston banker, invested $10,000 with Ponzi. A door opened. Suddenly, other wealthy people in the city felt safe putting their money into Ponzi's hands. Soon, he surrounded himself with more high-profile figures. He hired Robert D. Marcellus, the foreign manager at a respected bank, to be his financial efficiency expert. It was really just a title and not a job, but the association made Ponzi's system seem more professional. But increased investment and legitimacy brought increased scrutiny. The US Postal Authority was convinced that Ponzi's supposed investment in postal coupons was illegal, 
and put the operation under a microscope. However, given the fact that Ponzi never actually bought and sold postage, they were ultimately unable to find any proof of wrongdoing. Still, they tried to cut Ponzi off at the pass. In July of 1920, the Postal Authority issued an order stating that no more than 50 cents worth of international reply coupons could be redeemed at one time. These restrictions didn't concern Ponzi, but it was a sign of things to come. Shortly after, Ponzi's very first investor, the furniture dealer Joseph Daniels, sued him for $1 million. Daniels claimed that his initial investment was seed money and that he was more than just an investor. He wanted 50% of Ponzi's entire business. Ponzi was worried about the possible consequences it would have. Investors could get cold feet. The police could become more interested. When the lawsuit began, Ponzi simply illustrated his trustworthiness as much as possible. He quickly repaid anyone who wanted to withdraw their investment, no matter how much money. But no one really wanted to pull out. The lawsuit just made Ponzi's business look more successful. So successful that Joseph Daniels was willing to go to court to demand his share of it. And as a result, new investments soared. But in a building only a few blocks away from Ponzi's office, the seeds of his downfall were quietly being planted at the headquarters of the Boston Post. The Post's recent profile of Ponzi, which described him as a financial miracle worker who could turn paupers into millionaires overnight, had piqued the interest of Richard Grozier. Grozier was the Post's young editor and son of Edwin, its ailing owner. The stories of this strange local businessman intrigued him, but also made him incredibly skeptical. A 50% return on all investments within 90 days? It just didn't pass the sniff test. To make matters more personal, Grozier discovered that many of his employees at the Boston Post had invested with Ponzi. Something was very fishy about Charles Ponzi, and Grozier was going to figure out what it was. Grozier walked to Ponzi's office and was shocked by what he found. An endless line of aspiring investors stretched around the block waiting to hand their money over to the so-called wizard of finance. None of it felt right. He told his chief news editor, Edward J. Dunn, of his suspicions. Dunn dispatched two veteran reporters to look into Ponzi's dealings and see how much truth there was to his extraordinary claims. Grozier was taking a big risk. He was young and untested, having just taken over the paper from his ill father earlier in 1920. Now, he was preparing to investigate a popular and wealthy local figure. A false accusation could ruin not only his own reputation, but also his newspapers and his family's. 
but Grozier knew that if his suspicions were correct, that Ponzi was scamming tens of thousands of Boston residents, he had to be exposed before he could do any more damage. So quietly and carefully, Grozier and Dunn investigated. Ponzi, ignorant of the inquiry, felt even more invincible. Everyone wanted a piece of these miracle profits. Increasingly emboldened, he paid for his mother to immigrate to the United States and live with him and his wife. He knew that he was closing a potential escape route. With his mother in Boston, he could no longer flee to Italy if his scam fell apart. But he was so confident in his long-term strategy that he didn't care. In late July 1920, after 17 years apart, Ponzi reunited with his mother. They cried and embraced when Ponzi met her in the dingy quarantine building of the Boston Harbor. Ponzi was eager to show her what he'd made of himself. He paid for his mother to be released from quarantine, then brought her home, wowing her with the luxuriousness of his limousine and mansion. Those bedtime stories she had told him of becoming a rich and influential man had come true. The little boy, once known as Carlo Ponzi, who'd arrived in America with $2 to his name, had worked his way up to the dizzying heights of the financial elite. He'd gone from crushing rocks in a freezing cold prison to entertaining bankers and fat cats. By the end of 1920, Charles Ponzi was worth more than $8 million, over $100 million today. And it was all about to disappear. Thanks for listening to Con Artists. We'll be back next week with part two of Charles Ponzi's story. We'll see how Richard Grozier and the Boston Post worked to expose Ponzi's scam until all his lies were inevitably revealed. For more information on Charles Ponzi, we found Mitchell Zukov's Ponzi scheme, the true story of a financial legend, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Con Artists and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite podcast originals like Con Artists for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Con Artists on Spotify, just open the app and type Con Artists in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. I'll see you next time. Con Artist was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Anthony Valsic, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Joel Stein, and Travis Clark. This episode of Con Artist was written by Ryan Lee. I'm Alastair Murden.